If I were to ask you to write a 2,000-word essay, tell me the story of your life, how would that go for you? I mean, you all have a story. Would you be able to write it? What would, what would the main points be? What would the setting be? Would it be a good story or a difficult story to write? What would that story be like? I remember when I was applying for grad school to go to seminary, one of the places I applied to, they basically had an essay question that was just like that. In 2,000 words or less, like, tell us the story of your life. And I remember thinking, that's a difficult assignment for a few reasons. One is, that's not a lot of words. Um, two is, I didn't feel like I had done much in my life at that point. Um, but the, you know, the real reason it was hard is because I don't know what they wanted to hear, right? There's like a board of people who are sitting, who are going to pick up my essay and read it. I don't know what's going to impress them. I don't know what they want, right? Like, I don't know what's important to them. How much of those 2,000 words should I give to this, and how much should I give to that, right? I didn't know what to do. Like, for me, it was a big moment when I realized when you put cherry in with Coke in the Slurpee machine, it really changed the dynamic of a Slurpee. Like, that was a big moment for me. I don't know if that's going to get me into school or not, though, right? It's hard to know what they're looking for. I, I remember actually like thinking this, not about the Slurpee, but thinking this um, and Googling, how do I write the story of my life? And if you can think of the irony of asking Google how to write your story, right? I mean, eventually Google will be able to write the story of our lives better than we can, and that's like a future some of us look forward to, right? I remember, though, not knowing how to do it. And if you were to go home today, I wonder what would, go, what would go in your story? What would it be like? What would the setting be? What would be some of the defining moments? Would it, would it be a story of pain that maybe you've been caused? Would it be a story of pain that you've caused? Would it be a story of, of success, of triumph, of overcoming obstacles? Or would it be a story of always just falling a little bit short, always just missing the cut? Would it be a story of regret? Would it be a story of, I wish it went right when I went left, right? It probably would be a mix of all of those things. And how, much, how many words would you give to the family that you didn't choose, right? And how much of those words would you give to the family you did choose? And how much of those words would you give to uh, things like your work? How much of those words would you give to your faith? How much of those words to the, would you give to the things that you're passionate about, that you would love to see, but that you actually never did with any of your life? It's a hard assignment because you've only got 2,000 words. You can't say everything. And the fact is there are some things in life that are more important than other things. There are, there are some things about your story, your past, what's happened to you, what you've done, that just matter more than other things. And the problem is, a lot of times, we don't have a really good sense for how to evaluate what matters and what doesn't. What, what, what should be so important in our stories and what shouldn't. And here's why, here's why this matters. Because every single morning, every single morning, we wake up, not with a college essay to write, but we wake up with that college essay swimming around in our head. Every morning, we get up. And we have a story that has been written throughout the course of our lives, flowing around in our brain. And we live out of that story. That story determines the way we see the world around, the way we see ourselves, 
the way we interact with people who we're close to and who we're not close to. It determines how we face the world. And that story changes by the time we go to bed at night. We all have that story, whether we're cognizant of it or not. And here's what I mean, right? Like, I didn't get the promotion because I'm not good enough, and I'm not good enough because I'm not smart enough, and I'm not smart enough, and I know that because my parents told me that, and my friends told me that, and now it's been, um, you know, set in stone by my colleagues and my boss. And that's a story that you tell yourself and you live your life like that. Whether that story is true or not doesn't actually matter because that's the story you live by, right? Um, On the converse side, you know, I did get the promotion because I am the man right now, right? I am the best. I'm smarter than everyone. I'm more skilled than everyone. I'm more capable. I've worked hard. I've earned this. I, I, I. And whether that's true or not, That's a story that you live by, and that's good as far as it goes, but your head will probably get so big that it will explode someday, right? We tell ourselves stories like, you know, that person only pretends to be my friend. They can't possibly like me, because who would like me? And every single time I get close to someone, they end up leaving me. And so I just must not be lovable. I just must not be likable. No one actually wants to be my friend. Everyone's actually just faking it with me. It's probably not true, but it doesn't matter because that's the story that we tell and that's the story that we live with. And you could see what hangs in the balance here. You could see what hangs in the balance. If you give too much time, too many words to parts of your story that just aren't true, you're going to live a story that's hard. You're going to live a story um, that's damaged and that's damaging and ultimately that's not true. That's not real. Or you give attention to the right things, to the things that actually do matter. And you live your life out, and you can find that you can live a life of joy, even in the midst of things that are really hard, and hope in the midst of things that make you feel like there is no hope, right? And peace when there's every reason to feel anxious and to feel afraid. To have faith that, as we're saying through the series, can survive and thrive in the midst of this challenging world. But the problem is we have to know how to evaluate our story, how to evaluate our history, how to evaluate our past, what matters and what doesn't. And that's what we're going to kind of tease out this morning. And so throughout the series, we've been doing... um, We've been looking through this letter that a man named Paul wrote. Uh, It's called the Letter to the Philippians. Philippi was a city in ancient Greece. There was a group of people, just like us, trying to follow Jesus together, trying to figure out what this was all about. Paul, who was like a big guy of the faith, he was a founder, he, he actually started that church. He was stuck in prison, and he wrote them this letter. And he wrote them to tell them what they needed to know to have a faith that could survive and thrive in the midst of that challenging world. And if you've been with us throughout this spring, you have heard about how um, if we know the ending of our story, right, that our lives are in God's hands, whether, whether we go right or left, whatever way the wind blows, our lives are in God's hands. That's a good way to live life. And um, we need to know how to think and how to love and how to think and love like Jesus, which means we need to know our Lord. And two weeks ago, we talked about how we need to know our faith. We need to be able to work out our faith. It can't be someone else having our faith. We have to own our faith. 
Last week, we took a hiatus from the series because Michael, our lead pastor candidate, was here preaching, and he uh, talked about discipleship and where Jesus might be leading us to unimaginable places. And that, that was a great message. It kind of fit with the series, even though it wasn't part of the series. But this morning, we return to this need to know. And the need to know that we need to know this morning is we need to know our past. And specifically, we need to know the value of our past. We need to know how to evaluate our past. That if we were to write a college essay, what should go in it and what should, what should be left on the cutting room floor? And so this is exactly where Paul goes in this letter in uh, the third chapter. And it's going to start a little weird All right? Bear with me. We will get there. It's going to start a little weird. Paul begins by saying, beware of the dogs. Now, for me, this is great advice. I have a traumatic childhood with dogs. I don't like dogs. I don't get dogs. So beware of the dogs. Solid advice, regardless of what Paul means, right? (laughs) Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of those who mutilate the flesh. The dogs and the evil workers aren't actually dogs. Um, What he means by that is there was a group of people who had come into Philippi who were teaching those people something other than what Paul was talking about. And it had to do with mutilating the flesh. And this has to do with something called circumcision. Now, if you've been around for some time, you have heard me talk about circumcision. This is one of those things that actually is like one of the main themes in the New Testament. And it's sort of weird that it's such a main theme. But if you want to read the New Testament, especially Paul's letters, you have to have a sense for what circumcision is all about. Right. So, you know what circumcision is. Right. As like a medical procedure. Right. You know, little boy is the thing. We have a doctor here. He's wearing his scrubs. He can explain it to you later in great detail, all right? Um, Circumcision, you know what that is. In those days, though, uh, I mean, still for today, actually, for Jewish people, circumcision was something that God gave to the Jewish people um, right when they started. And it was something that little boys went through in order to say, um, this is who we are. This is who we belong to. We belong to this God. It kind of um, separated them from the rest of the world, right? It was kind of how they showed that they were in God's people. Um, If they didn't do it, then they weren't actually in God's people. So they needed to do this circumcision. It was something that they uh, did on their own, right? Um, The issue is, though, Paul, uh, you know, Paul had since taught that we don't need to do circumcision anymore. Christianity, Jesus' followers, started as a little tiny sect within the much broader Judaism, okay? And Paul taught that you don't need to do circumcision any longer because your faith, your being part of God's people, isn't dependent on anything you can do for yourself, okay? Nothing you can do for yourself. And Paul continues, he says, For it is we who are the circumcision. That's a weird sentence. We are the circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and boast in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. It's not the people who do circumcision who are the real circumcision, but we are the circumcision. And if you think of that imagery for a second, we are the group of people who are separated from the rest. We are the group of people who are cut off from the rest, right? So no one ever told you when you became a Jesus follower, you could think of yourself as a little flap of skin, right? But that's a feather in your cap. 
The point is, right? Point is, we have no confidence in the flesh. What Paul means by that is we have no confidence in what we do to maintain, to define our own faith or our own standing before God. We have no confidence in us. Our confidence instead is that we worship in the spirit of God and we boast in Christ Jesus. We're not proud of what we do to mutilate the flesh. We're not proud of what we do with our own hands. We're not proud of our work. We are proud of what Christ has done on our behalf. And that is what uh, separates us. That's what makes us distinct. No confidence in us, confidence only in Christ. Except, Paul says this. He says, even though I too have reason for confidence in the flesh. And here, Paul kind of goes into a little bit of a sarcastic tirade. He's saying, if these people, if these teachers who have come in think that they have reason to be confident in their flesh, in their Jewishness, in their works of the law, in their being all big about circumcision, if they have confidence in that, hold my beer. That's what he says. He says, if anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. And he goes into it. He says, listen, circumcised on the eighth day. The eighth day is when you get circumcised as a little Jewish boy. Not on the seventh, not on the ninth, not in three weeks when your family can come into town. On the eighth day, that's when you're circumcised. And he says, a member of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin. He didn't need to become a member. He was born a member. And not just to any tribe, but to one of the premier tribes. He says, I am a Hebrew born of Hebrew, right? Paul is a man's, like, we think of like a man's man, right? A pro's pro, a musician's musician, right? Us normal people listen to musicians, but who do musicians listen to? They listen to like musicians' musicians. That's Paul. He is a Hebrew, Hebrews Hebrew, right? He's a Hebrew born in Hebrews. He is like the cream of the crop. And that's just how he was born. He hasn't gotten into what he's done yet. He says, as to the law, I'm a Phar- he was a Pharisee. A Pharisee was the most strict, most serious of the Jewish law followers in those days. They studied every single word of the Old Testament. They knew it in and out. They followed it word for word, and their faith was built around keeping so strong to that word. As to the law, he was the cream of the crop. He studied with the best um, rabbi there was. And then he said, as to zeal a persecutor of the church. He didn't just do faith in his head, right? This wasn't something he thought, um, but he walked his walk, right? He didn't just talk it, he walked it. For uh, the Jewish people then, they thought Christianity was this little sect that was blasphemous. And Paul didn't just think Christians were wrong. Paul didn't just think um, that they should be taught against, but he actually went out and persecuted them. He put his, you know, his money where his mouth was, and he went out and persecuted the church. No one could compete with them in those regards. And then he said, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Blameless. Um, not that he was perfect, not that he was sinless. He was too much of a law follower to know he, he, that he, he wasn't sinless. But in that world, no one could hold a candle to who Paul was as a Jewish man. No one could hold a candle. He was He was above reproach. He had it all. This would be like us saying, you know, I graduated from the Rushmore Academy. I was a Rhodes Scholar, right? I went to Harvard. I did my PhD at Oxford, and I was the youngest VP in company history, right? This is like, I have it all. 
And do you know what Paul came to think of all these things? You know what Paul did? How he came to see his story. How he came to evaluate his past. He said, yet, whatever gains I had, whatever good happened, whatever good I was a part of, whatever good I was born in, whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as loss because of Christ. All that good stuff that I did for myself, all that positive stuff I accumulated on my side of the ledger, it's loss. This is a financial metaphor. There's gains and there's losses. This is not like modern finances that no one understands, right? Where you could like take on debt and that's a good thing and you can bet on debt. No, no, no. There's positives and negatives. All this stuff that in Paul's world was nothing but a positive, he came to see as loss, as negative, because of Christ. Not that, notice, not that these things actually were bad. Not that these things actually were negatives, but he came to regard them like that. And that word regard occurs three times in the passages we're going to look at. Um, he came to see them. That word regard, this is how he came to evaluate his past as lost, as lost, because of Christ. Because of Christ, he can look back on his life and he could see the things as for what they really were, good, good things, perhaps. But there's no future in those things. Those things were a dead end. Paul says, and more than that, more than that, I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, not just the good things, not just the things that you want on your ledger, not just the things that you're proud of, but everything, the good and the bad, the nice things and the ugly things, the things I'm proud of and the things I am ashamed that I was a part of. Everything I think now is lost compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. You can see, hopefully, what's at the heart of what Paul is getting at here. He is saying any time that we put real, ultimate, meaningful value, meaningful stock in anything other than knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, it is like a loss. And that right there is a challenging idea for each of us. It's a challenging idea if you actually allow that principle to apply to your life. It's kind of like, um, you know, like we have a glass, and we've all been to restaurants where they fill up the glass too much with ice, right? And like ice is good, we all know that, but I want lemonade. I'm paying for lemonade. That's what I want in that glass. You have to take out some of that ice in order to create room for lemonade. And so uh, any ice that you have in your glass, it's just counted as loss, right? There's just not enough room for what you actually want. It's like you're spending too many words of your essay on things that just don't matter. And I know, for some of you, because we've talked about it, there are some things in your glasses that are taking up way too much space, that are taking up too much of your um, time, too much of your attention, that are telling too much of your story, too much that doesn't need to be there, and it makes us that there's not enough room for what is supposed to be there. And what's supposed to be there is Christ. That's what's supposed to be there right? Not that those things don't matter. Not that those things aren't important in some way, but they just loom too large in your story. There is too much ink being spilled over those things, too many tears being spilled. 
Not because they're not real, but because there's something more real, something more important, of more value um, that is supposed to be there. Paul regards, he knows everything as loss next to the unimaginable value of knowing Christ. It's like there's a scale, and on one side is knowing Christ, and on the other side is every single other thing. Everything. And knowing Christ weighs heavier. Knowing Christ is more important. Knowing Christ wins the day. I don't know about you, but do you believe like that? Do you live like that? Do you pursue faith like that? Do you get up in the morning with that story in your mind? I don't every morning. I know that. Paul continues. He says, for his sake, for Christ's sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and I regard them as rubbish. And this word rubbish, this is where people like me get excited because um, one of the translations is dung. Um, and like one school of thought is like, this is actually Paul using the vulgar form of the word dung that like I can't use in church, right? But like, this is what, this is what Paul is saying here. Like it's dung. And the other way of translating it is like trash. It's just refuse. And now, it doesn't mean that Paul's history, that Paul's lineage, that Paul's schooling, that what Paul has done is worthless, that it's actually, you know, dung. It just means that compared to knowing Christ, it's just not even worth it. It's not worth comparing. It's not worth thinking about. And for Paul, he knows he has to take ice out of his glass. He has to delete words from his essay to get it to fit. He says, so in order to, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. This is the center for Paul. This is the core of, of really everything that Paul believes. Gain Christ, be found in him. This is the center of his story. This is how he evaluates his story. This is the grid through which he sees his past, his present, and his future. This is his measurement. Gain Christ and be found in him. Notice, gaining Christ is not like a commodity, right? It's not like um, you gain an iPhone and you put it in your pocket and your life is better. That's not what this is. This is everything changes because you gain Christ. You are found in him. Being found in Christ, this is the setting of Paul's very story. This is where he comes from now. Being found, this is beautiful. This is, this is a homeless metaphor, right? This is a homeless metaphor. Until you are found in Christ, you're not found in the right place. You're homeless. Right? Lost and found. Lost things uh, aren't in their proper home until they are found. To be found in Christ finally means to uh, find your home in him. And your story gets a brand new setting. Because every story has a setting, a context. For Paul, prior to becoming a Jesus follower, he was all of those things. He was on his way to persecute more Christians. And Jesus met him and changed his life. And in that moment, his story was completely rewritten. His story had a different home. His story had a different setting, a different context, and it was all in the light of Christ. 
It was all because of Christ. It was in the light of the cross and the resurrection that Paul sees absolutely everything differently about his story, his past, his college essay would look totally different. When you write your story, thinking about that again, where is the home of your story? Where does it take place? What's the context? What's the setting? Where are you found in your own story? Are you found in a room where that thing happened and you're full of guilt because of it and you just can't get out of it? Are you found in a maze of pain that you can't quite seem to find your way out of? Are you found trapped in a moment where you heard the news that everything changed for you? Are you trapped in a moment, perhaps, where you've put so much stock in how you were born and who your family is and what you've done and what you've accomplished and what you've achieved? You've put so much value in it and you're stuck in the moment where you realize that that stuff doesn't actually turn out to be anything but loss. The question is, does your story, does it take place? Are you found at home with you by yourself or are you found at home in Christ? This is, the, this is the situation that Paul thrusts on us here. And he boils it all down in these two phrases. It's very clear. Righteousness of my own versus righteousness from God. This is the two ways that we can see things. This is the two ways that we could approach the world. And I know righteousness is like the most churchy sounding word you've ever heard in your whole life, right? And there's like kind of a negative connotation to righteousness because we think of self-righteousness and self-righteousness is bad. But all righteousness means when Paul, actually, it means a lot. But I'm going to boil it down. What it means when Paul says it is, um, it means being made right with God. It, it means being set in the right place with God. It means being set in the right home with Christ, with God. That's really all Paul means by righteousness. It's not about moral perfection or being better than other people or, or pedigree or zealousness or anything. It's about being made right, being put in the right place with God. And the thing that Paul is, is saying here, he doesn't say it directly. It's behind what he's saying. He says it directly elsewhere. He's saying you can never, ever, ever count on your own righteousness to do that. You can never count on your own works on your own circumcision, on your own following the law, on how you were born, on what you've done to show yourself worthy to God, you cannot count on righteousness of your own. The only thing that you can count on is righteousness from God. That's all, that's all you can do. It's not faith in your faith. It's not faith in your works. It's not faith in your flesh, but it's faith in Christ instead. That's what it, that's what it all comes down to. It comes down to what happened here. It's faith in, faith in Christ rather than in us. What Paul is driving at is that there is just two ways to see things, right? There's two ways to see the world, two ways to write your story. One is about what you've done, confidence in your flesh, righteousness of my own, what you've done to make yourself right with God. And the other way is simply according to Christ, according to the righteousness that he has given, the righteousness from God, not that we could earn, but that God has given, where the home is not in what you've done, but the home is in what Christ has done for us. It's seeing the world according to Christ's flesh, not according to our flesh. And what did Christ do with his flesh? He allowed it to be nailed here, and he allowed it to be 
broken and his body poured out so that you could be forgiven and you could be healed and you could be reconciled and redeemed and restored and renewed and you could be made new. That's what happened. That's what happens when we put our confidence in his flesh rather than our own. And that's why it's the next thing Paul says. He says, so I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ. I don't want to know what I've done in the past. I don't want to know what I've earned. I don't want to know what my flesh can do. I don't want to know that. The only thing I want to know is I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And you know what the resurrection is? That's when God raised his dead son's body from the ground and gave it new life, gave Christ new life. And that's what is at stake for each and every one of us, new life in Christ. Paul says elsewhere, this is what he says elsewhere. He says, so if anyone is in Christ, if anyone has been found in him, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. Everything old has passed away. Everything has become new. If we ever wanted to know how to evaluate our past, how to write a story, what actually matters to go in our college essay, this is the way, this is the way we should see it. This is the way we should do it, evaluating everything in the light of Christ, in the light of us being a new creation in him. And so I want to ask you, when you think about your own life, are the right things taking up your 2,000 words? Are the right things filling your glass? Do you evaluate it based on what you have done, what you have earned, good or bad, your regrets or your successes? Or do you evaluate it solely on Christ and what he has done for you? Listen, if we are going to have a faith that can survive and thrive in the midst of a challenging world, we need to know how to see ourselves, how to see our past, how to see our story. We need to know how to live out of the right story. For some of us, we put so much stock in what we have done, in what we've accomplished and who we are. And these things aren't dung, right? These things aren't worthless. But the moment that they become a replacement for what God has done in Christ, they become something that they were not meant to be. And you should regard them as rubbish. The challenge of faith is to say, I am what I am, not because of what I've done, not because of how I was born, but I am what I am because of what Christ has done for me. For some of us, it's hard to see our lives this way because there are things that we've done that we just can't get past. There are things that we have done where we just feel guilty and we can't get out of that room, right? And for you, what you might need to do is pay attention again to what happened here, to listen to what happened here, and to actually accept the forgiveness that Jesus' flesh was broken so that you could be forgiven. You have to come to actually accept that and then move on from that thing that happened, that thing that you were a part of, that thing that was done to you, or you've done. Maybe it's time for you to look at this again and delete that part of your essay and fill it with something else. Your past, I saw this this week, your past should remind you. It doesn't need to define you. Because Jesus is your real story. Jesus is your true story. The most important thing to happen to you happened about 2,000 years before you were born. 
And I wonder if when we wake up in the morning and go about our day and go to bed at night, is that how we actually think about our lives? Is that how we actually envision ourselves? Do we actually look at it according to this? Or do we look at it according to confidence in the flesh, righteousness of my own, all the reasons that we have to boast in ourselves? My simple challenge to you this morning is to think about your story differently. To learn to actually see your past differently. To evaluate yourself differently. Allow that story to be retold, reimagined, reformed by this instead. By this instead. Because everything, absolutely everything on the scale next to knowing Jesus, there's no comparison. Next to being found in him, there is no comparison. And not only that, but the story that you have been living out of, it's just not true. It's just not real. It's just not lasting. Only this one is. Let's pray that we could be reformed by that story instead. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the way that you stick with us even when we try to write stories that are opposite of yours. We thank you, God, for the way that you are faithful, that you have given yourself, that you have not left us to fend for ourselves, to boast for ourselves, to prove ourselves, to make ourselves worthy, to justify ourselves. But you have done it all for us. We thank you, God, that you have given your life for us on the cross. That your broken body and your poured out blood makes it so that we don't need righteousness of our own and we can't ever have it, but we have your righteousness. And that's, that's all we need, made right by you. God, we pray that you would help us to actually believe that, to actually live like that, to actually see our past with those eyes in light of your cross and the power of your resurrection to give new life. Lord, we pray that you would um, give us eyes to see like that when we can't see like that. Inspire us to believe like that where we can't believe like that. Inspire us, speak to us so that we could be forgiven and actually believe we're forgiven and move forward. We thank you, Jesus, that you are with us in all of it that you are our Lord who is, who is so present, who is so worth following, and in whom we really have our home. And so, Lord, this morning we pray that in you, you would let us be found. In your name we pray. Amen.